Welcome to the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. My name is Jeanette Cochran. I'm a pastor, women's leadership coach, and self-proclaimed Jesus feminist. I'm on a mission to inspire and equip women everywhere to own our voice, speak up, create, and lead wherever God calls. Because when women rise, everyone wins. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Empowered Christian Woman podcast. I'm thrilled that you have chosen to tune in again today, and I hope you're having a fantastic week. Today, I have another empowering conversation with a resilient and amazing woman leader. Her name is Ruth Everhart. She's an author, a pastor, a speaker, and I want to just fill you in on the front end This is a very heavy topic. It's a tough topic, and we only scratch the surface. Additionally, just trigger warning, we talk about sexual abuse and sexual violence and trauma. Ruth shares a bit of her story experiencing sexual violence at the hands of two intruders that broke into her house when she was a college student. She also shares her experience in her very first pastoral calling as an associate pastor, where she was sexually harassed by her boss and the lead pastor in that denomination. It's not a warm and fuzzy topic, but this podcast is about addressing the truth of what needs to be addressed. This podcast is not always going to be warm and fuzzy. Why? I want to be someone who is looking at the positive because there is a lot out there that's positive. I want to be inspiring folks to work together and women to stand up and take their place in the world and in their churches and in their homes. And sometimes that means we have to look at the systems that are broken, at the evil and the injustice that takes place all around us. And so this is one of those episodes. So if you are a survivor of sexual abuse or sexual violence, I do want to just warn you, maybe this is an episode that you need to skip. Or you need to just be prepared to make sure that you're taking some time to for self care and just reflection. And if you have little ears around you, If you're listening in the car with others or at home where your children are around, this is probably an episode where you may want to put your earbuds in and um, may not be the time that you want to expose your children to some of these topics. So just be aware of that. But as I said, this is a rather important topic. It just so happens that the week that this episode is going live, just a few days earlier, Christianity Today published an article about Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, who is a well-known pastor. He's a mega church pastor on the radio, is the author of many books. He is the uh, leader of his own seminary. And his church is in the news because women had come forward seeking help and refuge and counseling for abusive husbands. And these leaders sent them back 
to their homes and told them to stay with their abusive husbands. In some of these situations, the women were concerned that their husbands were sexually abusing their children. And yet the church told them that they needed to stay. They even disciplined them in some situations when the women did not listen to them and stay in their marriages. It's really pretty horrendous. And this is the result of patriarchy and bad theology. I'm very passionate about bringing good theology around women and men and how God has created us as equal beings and what a healthy relationship looks like between men and women in the church, in the home, in the world. But I also want to be clear that just because your church espouses an egalitarian theology and and says that women are created equal and does what they can to create welcoming spaces for women does not necessarily mean that sexism and abuse does not take place. In fact, you'll hear in Ruth's story, she was an associate pastor. She was in a denomination that was affirming of women's gifts and was making space for women. But that doesn't mean that abuse and broken systems don't still exist. Not only do we need churches where women can exercise their gifts and have a voice, but we also need to make sure that our communities are spaces where all women have a voice, whether they want to use that voice in leadership or use that voice in their marriage or use that voice in the community and to be able to have agency to make the choices that are best for them to keep themselves and their children and their families safe. As I said, we just scratched the surface in this conversation, but I hope maybe it'll bring some awareness and that you will do whatever you can to take your next steps to bring hope and healing to survivors of abuse and to help us create, wherever you are, healthy faith communities. This is my conversation with Pastor Ruth Everhart. Welcome, Ruth. I'm thrilled to have you on the Empowered Christian Woman podcast and to share your story and your wisdom with our listeners. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your ministry and leadership? Well, thanks, Jeanette. Thanks for having me. I'm just happy to be here. Always love talking to uh, Empowered Christian Women. It's a wonderful, wonderful title. I'm Ruth Everhart. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I've been ordained since 1990. I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I grew up in a more evangelical um, church that was more conservative and it did not allow women to be in ministry. So it did take me a little while to experience my call and end up in seminary and then up in ministry. And along the way, I've occasionally um, stopped working in a church so that I could write a book. I've written three books. I find that I can pastor church and I can write a book, but I cannot do them both at once. So I have kind of a, so I've been at a lot of different churches, which has been a lot of good experience for me. Tell us a little bit about how you discovered your call to pastoral ministry. You, you say that you grew up in a very conservative denomination and maybe hadn't seen that. So tell us just a little bit of the behind the scenes of how you figured out you were called to be a pastor. 
Well, you know, I think if I'd been a little boy, I would have been identified as a pastor uh, by the time I was, you know, nine years old, because I was one of these kids who had a very spiritually oriented heart, um, always wanted to think about and talk about Jesus and God, you know, and um, loved studying the Bible and studying theology. I, I asked my pastor if I could do extra catechism lessons. I mean, who does that? Right. So I feel like, you know, it would have been a, a no brainer, but of course I was literally told, I remember being told you should marry a pastor. Um, you know, as if that's super easy or smart, you know? Um, so it's like, it was an unthinkable thought to go into ministry myself. So I never thought of it and nobody around me ever thought of it. Until I was um, older, I mean, in college, I had a minor in religion. And at that point, the question was, why not become a Wycliffe Bible translator? Because I was also good at language. And I considered that. And then a great trauma happened in my life that was actually what later I, I wrote about in my memoir. And that kind of derailed me. Eventually, I came back around, and when I ended up in this Presbyterian church one day, which is a story told in the memoir, it was a really powerful experience. The first time I walked into a church where there was a woman preaching, and it happened to be a Presbyterian church, and she was preaching on the woman with a flow of blood, Jesus healing that woman, and that was a life-changing day for me. Later on, when I got to know that pastor, she said to me, well, have you ever thought about going to seminary? I said, yeah, I have. And she said, well, you know, there's a seminary up the road. You could just take a night class, you know, famous last words, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it began. And so it began. I'll go to seminary, but I won't get a degree. I'll get a degree, but I won't get a master's of divinity. I'll get a master's of divinity, but I won't be a preacher. Anyway, yeah. I got, yeah. I, I found my way. Eventually, Jesus leading me the whole way, I'm sure in hindsight, but in the moment, it it didn't feel like a smooth and straight course. Yeah. Uh, so much in there. It, it It is interesting that in so many Christian circles, the, the highest calling for a woman would be to be the pastor's wife rather than, uh, and, but fortunately some, some today are, are the, the pastor's husband, right? We have those today now, praise God. Um, well, you are the author of three books. I've read one of them. Uh, two of them are Ruined and The Me Too Reckoning. I've read The Me Too Reckoning. So tell us a little bit about the books and why you wrote them. Ruined came before The Me Too one, and it kind of paved the way. So I'll talk about that just a little bit. Is um, in about mid-career I was in my mid forties and I had the opportunity to go to a, a clergy conference for pastors in their mid career. It was supposed to be like a time to look back where we'd been and think about where we were going in the future. It was just this wonderful space of time. Um, and, you know, uh, Jeanette and I were talking before we came on here about how busy we are in ministry and how it, it's kind of surprising how, how busy the life of ministry is. And so and anyone who's in ministry is not surprised by that. But so to have this kind of space and time to step away from the day-to-day -day busyness was really important. 
And what I came to realize in these times of self-reflection was that I still had two big wounds in my past and they were both around sexual abuse. And I felt that Jesus wanted me to do something about that, that I, I couldn't just like limp through the rest of my life with these wounds, even though, you know, I was managing, I was doing things. I was, you know, I raised two kids and I was in a long-term marriage. I was a minister by every, you know, it would seem to be that I was doing just fine, but it was really interesting to me when I took that time that I became so aware of this wound and so I decided to do two things. I decided to write a, a book about this experience, this traumatic experience of being raped at gunpoint when I was tw 20 years old. Hmm. And that always feels like a big sentence to say that, but that that's my history. That's what happened to me when I was a senior in college. Two men broke into a house where I was living uh, with my housemates and were there all night, tied us up robbed us, took turns raping us at gunpoint. And that was that became this kind of huge before and after experience in my life. And um, the title of the memoir is kind of a clue as to what I made of that experience. The title is Ruined, and I felt ruined. I wanted the title to be Ruth Ruined because it's alliterative, but because um, that was my thought for myself, that Ruth was ruined. And so I, I wanted to then afterwards, you know, 35 years later, really, I'm looking back at what happened and more than that, what I made out of what happened, like what I believed about what happened, what my church told me. Um, and my church did tell me I was ruined. And what's more, they told me that it was the will of God for this to happen to me. And, and I was just subjected to so much really terrible theology. And I mean, I kind of wrestled my way out of it because, you know, I was telling you about this little girl that I once was who loved Jesus so much. And it's like, I wouldn't let the church destroy that for me. And, um, you know, I, so I found my way through that and, and I found my way to seminary and, and, and to healing, you know, we, we talk about healing as if it's, you know, it's on a spectrum, right? And there's always more to be healed. Um, and at some point, we do we're able to work out of our scars and 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 do good things. So that's the book I wrote about that experience, this traumatic experience, and then the ten years um, after that, and how my theology had to be reshaped, and 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 how that how that worked out for me. So I, that book was published in 2016. Um, it was by Tyndale House, um, and it was actually awarded Book of the Year by Christianity Today Women. And it was really ahead of its time because the Me Too movement really started in 2017. Hmm. So this was a year ahead of that. And I'm going around speaking about rape and sexual assault and faith. And at the time, there, were, there was nobody was doing that. And so th then I would, all these people would tell me their stories. And so I, I was just in contact with a lot of women and men who'd been abused at the hands of faith leaders. And so the, I, I said that I discovered I had two wounds around sexual abuse. And one was this rape at gunpoint when I was 20. But the other was that when I was in my first call 
as an associate pastor, my senior pastor, who was my boss, sexually harassed me. And I know that one reason he preyed upon me was because of my history as a, um, a survivor of sexual assault, that I was not, I, I didn't talk about it a lot, but I didn't hide it either. And so he knew this about me and, um, you know, used it against me and harassed me. And so then I started to think, well, it's time to talk about that story because that's a more subtle story than getting raped at gunpoint, right? This is this extreme story. You get, you know, your house is broken into and, and the cops come and, and actually the, the um, rapists were apprehended and, and um, sentenced. I mean, it, so that was an extreme story. But I also had this other story that's a lot more subtle, you know, sexual harassment. Um, but it was equally as shaping and negative and painful um, to recover from. And so I had this story of my own. And I had brought charges against. So, so I did two things after I had this, you know, come to Jesus moment that I had these wounds that I had to attend to. I, I wrote, started writing the, what became the memoir. It took me five years to write that book. And I brought charges against the senior pastor who had sexually harassed me. And so out of all that, um, and then the Me Too movement began and I was like, hallelujah, we're going to finally, you know, get justice for women. And the church is going to be a leader in this because we're all about justice, um, you know, for the disempowered and, um, you know, not so much actually um, in reality. So, so I really felt called then to write the next book. So this one, the Me Too Reckoning is also memoiristic in the sense that it tells me, tells my story in chapter one. But what I do that's really different is that I interweave stories from the Bible um, and it's not just my story. I think two of the chapters are my story. And then the other eight are other stories of, uh, stories that are, that people told me or that I was uh, aware of because it was a church I was affiliated with in one way or another. And they're all slightly different. Of course, every human story is different. And so I interweave it with a, a biblical story. And that's, that's how that book ended up coming to be. It was published by InterVarsity in 2020. The the resilience that you have demonstrated of just continuing to go forward, continuing in your call despite the the trauma and the obstacles that you faced is amazing to me. You are definitely a true testimony of what God can do. And, and what I love is that you have... N- You've worked very hard to not let your voice be silenced. And um, I I know that there's a, a couple places I think I remember in the book where you mentioned that that sometimes people tend to think, well, if you're talking about it, then you must not, you must need more healing. Like when when sexual abuse survivors heal, they just they it's gone and they never talk about it. And, but you've been like, no, this is the problem. We don't talk about it. Could you say some more about that? No, what you're, what you're raising up out of the book is right. I, and I, and I talk about that, how people are like, well, if you were really healed, you would just be quiet then about this topic, because I don't really want to think about this icky thing, sexual abuse. And as if um, being healed means you're now, you know, unblemished and you're never going to have to cop to that. Um, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It makes people uncomfortable. And when a topic is uncomfortable, you know, it's it, it's like it should just go away and be kind of completely smoothed over. And so what I'm saying is, no, you still there's still a scar there. You it's and scars are beautiful, you know, and it, it has shaped me and it has shaped me into the woman I've become. And and there's no need to keep silence about that. Mm-hmm. And I try to convey that to other women because like, I'm not the only one walking around with wounds or scars. I mean, we are, we are legion, you know? So why can't we, uh, can we unearth the, the dialogue that needs to happen so that healing can happen more widely and, and it doesn't have to be disconnected from the church. It can be integrated with the life of faith through the church. I won't shut up. I love it that you are, you are bringing to light the conversation that needs to happen more often. And as I said, I, in reading your book, it was hard. And there were times where honestly, I was tempted to be like, Oh, do I need to, do I really need to, to read this? And part the stories were that systems could be so broken and that people could be so evil. And as I had those thoughts, I realized, no, this is what it means. First of all, to bear one another's burdens. Like there are, many who have lived through this. Number two, as a church leader, I need to be aware of the reality of what I'm responsible to make sure to do everything that I can, that this would not happen in my church. And until we listen to the stories, I think that is what oftentimes prevents us of thinking like, oh, everything's fine. And we don't see the signs um, because we've not allowed ourselves to really wrestle with, with what happens. And, and you have said in your book ruined that the church was not helpful in your healing and maybe that the church was actually more harmful. Your faith was helpful, but the church was not helpful. What are some of the things that you would want church leaders to know that was not helpful that you would, you that they should not repeat. And when trying to help a, a victim of sexual trauma, sexual abuse. Well, I think it's really important to be conversant with with, with uh, trauma informed care. You know, I think there's a lot more conversation and, and awareness about that today, and I think that's really important. And and what that means is being really victim centered in your approach. So if you hear a story, um, you need to allow allow the victim to shape your response. I felt when I told the story of, of, of what happened to me and my housemates when these two men broke into our house, it, it was like it overwhelmed other people, which for one seems puzzling to me in the sense that I'm in a Calvinist tradition. You know, we're going to talk about total depravity all the time, but we can't actually deal with encountering evil, right? Uh, evil itself seems surprising and, and, and painful and beyond our ken. Well, it's not. People deal with evil all the time. And so why don't we as faith leaders have some language for that or some ability to hear? And so I'm I'm glad for now the kind of the rise of trauma-informed care, which has these four four maxims, you know, do not harm, prioritize safety, empower care, and practice calm. So it's like I have that on a little sticky note here. And and, you know, I think every pastor should have that on a sticky note somewhere in their computer. When you, when you hear a story like this, you go, okay, I need to be victim-centered and find out what the victim needs from me. I need to give them space to tell their story. 
whether they want to tell their story one more time, 10 more times, a hundred more times. I mean, that's up to them. I need to make sure that they are physically and emotionally and spiritually safe. You know, I need to maybe walk alongside them as they go and make a police report or as they bring charges and they need to be have an advocate in the justice system. And if I can't do that, mate, I have to make sure they have someone who can do that. So these, you know, actual walking beside a victim and not being just like overwhelmed yourself. I mean, you feel overwhelmed. You know, I understand. Go shed your tears, you know, go pray through it go read some books or whatever, but don't, don't abandon someone who comes to you with a really painful story. Um, And at least to have resources that you can turn them to that are, that are really trustworthy, that are not going to do more harm. You raise a lot of good points and the need, especially for clergy to be trained in, in handling these kinds of situations and being able to be there for the, the person that they're trying to minister to and walk to and not re-victimize them. In your situation as a pastor, in your book, you re, you recount that your supervisor, who was another pastor, who was also the one that laid hands on you during your ordination, um, and so he sexually ha- harassed you, and um, might even be able to say what you described sound a little bit like sexual assault um, that you were able to stop. But in your case, you went to the elders, you prepared, and you brought it to them. And shockingly, they didn't believe you. And they kind of justified or made excuses for the pastor's behavior, like maybe you misunderstood and kind of turned it around on you. And I think, unfortunately, that does happen too often in churches where where they are, the people in power, the people in leadership are not able or won't see what's going on. And so why do you think that is? What do you think blocks seemingly good people from seeing the abuse as it is and addressing it, especially maybe in their in their pastors and their leaders? Well, I think you've already named it, and that is power. I think that we tend to default to, to sticking with the status quo when it terms comes to power. And in this case, the abuser had power over me in like so many ways. He was a long time beloved pastor. He was literally twice my age. You know, I was 32. He was 64. I mean, he was at the end of his career. I was at the beginning of mine. He'd been in the presbytery a long time. Uh, He was actually a leader in our presbytery. I was just nobody coming in from um, many states away. Um, so I had no credibility. And I think that when you have a person who's in power abusing a person who has less power, you know, to, to take that credibly, you would have to upset the status quo. You'd have to upset the power dynamic. I think it takes actually a person with a lot of guts and with nerves of steel to do that. Most people, even good people in a church, are not going to want to upset that. They're going to want to default to trust. They want to trust the person in power. But you think of what you give up if you then go, wow, our senior pastor is actually not like such a great guy. You know, it's it's not just do we believe it's Ruth. It's 
do we believe that all these years we've been kind of duped by this guy? Do we all of a sudden go, oh man, if he's not a man of God, but he's the one who baptized my kids, he's the one who confirmed my kids, he's the one I've been listening to as an elder on session, you know, for all these years. I mean, like you're threatened a lot when you when you bring an accusation in that milieu, right? You just there's it's very unsettling. So people, it's not going to be anybody's default to go, okay, I'm going to believe this outsider. And, you know, I mean, in in hindsight now, I think I have a better understanding of what a big ask that was when I went to them. And that I was naive in the sense, I was like, I've got truth on my side. I mean, I'm just telling them what really happened. I'm not lying. I'm not embroidering it. I'm not making it up. I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to let them see what this did to me. And I mean, I was just, I laid it all out and I was weeping, you know, and you know, there I am weeping and there he is saying, Oh, she just misunderstood, you know, and I look like an overly emotional woman. And he looks like the, the wise faith leader that they've always trusted. So in hindsight, I'm less surprised than I was in the moment. Mm. But that said, we all understand power and patriarchy more, right? There's been a lot of movement in our society of of not wanting to make those same defaults to go, oh yeah, just because you're the white male in power that that means you should be in power or, you know, that you shouldn't share power or that we shouldn't just look at these power dynamics. So I think that we've come a long way, not that we don't, we have tons more to go, but I think there's better awareness than there used to be. At least I, I want to cling to that belief, Jeanette. <laughs> yes, I'm with you on that. And I, you kind of touched on that. Yeah, that that patriarchy is part of the problem. The system of patriarchy that, unfortunately, in many churches is still not only prominent, but in some churches, it's actually taught as the biblical model. So we have these beliefs around who should hold ultimate power, and it really hurts those who have less power. And so I want to go to one of the stories that you bring about in your book that has to do with power and consent. You talk about the story of David and Bathsheba, because I think this is a great example. And it's only been in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 five, six, seven years that I've even heard this talked about in this way. Up until most recently, growing up in the church, David and Bathsheba was, well, David loved her and she was beautiful. And it was presented as they kind of had this love affair. So what they did wrong was they committed adultery and that it was mutual. But you talk about this in your book. So tell us a little bit about the true reality of the context between Bathsheba and David and the, the imbalance of power that you're speaking to you experienced. Yeah. And then the question of consent, which is at the key, is it's, it's, it's all embedded in a question of power. Is it possible for a person with less cons- power to give consent to a person with greater power. Does that even have meaning? I mean, I compare that in the book, I compare it to, I talk about Sally Hemings. Um, I remember going back and forth on that in, in drafts of the book where, you know, Sally Hemings is famous for being Thomas Jefferson's uh, paramour. I mean, he, she was also his slave. I mean, she, he, she had children by him. 
So, um, and I live here in Virginia and you can go to Monticello and you can see what a good job they're doing and retelling the Sally Hemings story because there are a lot of descendants who have Jefferson blood and Hemings blood in them. And, um, and so the reason I bring this up is to say that this is a very real uh, situation that there could be a man with greater power and a woman with lesser power and they could have children together. So the question, you know, that then the historians are wrestling with is, you know, do we talk about S Sally Hemings as his lover, his paramour, or what did he rape her? You know, in, in, in a way, the questions are kind of facile. Um, she was owned by him. You know, I mean, so what is the meaning of, of consent? So Bathsheba and uh, David, I mean, he was King David. He, he was the great commander of the army, you know. There was no there was no king like King David, you know. I mean, the Jesus' lineage is the lineage of King David. So he's this ultimate example of a, of, of a man's man. And he, he's her husband's boss. Her husband's a, a, a general, a commander in the army, and, 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 and David is his boss. You know, so if you really go through the text on kind of more of a line by line, paragraph by character, you know, really look at the text. There are no indications at all that she welcomed his advances. She, she actually raised her voice in a really impressive way when she, she, you know, she sends him a note that she's pregnant. And, you know, she's just like very forthright. And, and, and that's recorded in scripture. And, and I love that that's recorded for us because it does show that a woman can raise her voice and it can impact then her story. You know, she doesn't have to stay silent, but could she consent? I mean, does the word consent really even belong in that story? What does it mean to cons consent if a king sends for you and makes it clear he wants to uh, be sexual with you? And, and you have no ability to say no. I mean, we have a word for that. That's rape. Yes. Right. And I think the whole question of consent is really important for Christians because to give consent is to honor the image of God in you, right? If, if I believe that I'm made in the image of God, then I have the ability to actually respond to what you say and to say yes or no. You know, I'm given that choice. That's what free will is. So um, it's a huge area that I don't think we talk about enough. We don't talk about consent enough. We talk about purity way too much. So I, I would like to see us rebalance our conversations around women's sexuality. Looking at the David and Bathsheba story, even, you know, post the Me Too movement with a lot of the conversations that have taken place it's really clear to see, it's a lot easier to see how much Bathsheba suffered because um, her husband clearly was, seemed like he was an upstanding man. I mean, when he was, when David calls for him back, he's like, no, I wouldn't sleep with uh, my wife. I wouldn't do that. And so who's not to say that she loved her husband very much and was very happy. And so not only is she, uh, raped, but then she loses her husband. You know, there's, so when we look at the story from Bathsheba's lens versus David's lens, which the story is always told from David's lens, I think because for so long, 
the story has only been told by men. And I'm not meaning to beat up on men, but I'm trying to say we have different lenses and different life experiences. And with more women now uh, having a voice and, and exegeting the scriptures, it's more likely that we're like, okay, let's look at this from Bathsheba's perspective. And we start to see things that we've missed all along. You know, with what you've been through, what pieces of advice would you give um, church leaders or congregants out there of how they can be a part of a solution? Yeah, that's a great question. And I um, I wrote an article about that back in 2018. It was called 18 Ways Churches Can Fight Sexual Assault in 2018. I don't think any of those ways have expired and um, you can find this just by the way at my website. In it's in one of the articles that's linked, and you can get the access to it. But I think it's a helpful. I wrote it as a sidebar. Um, I wrote a cover story for the Christian Century called "A Pastor's Me Too Story," and it was about this story that of um, being sexually harassed, which became the first chapter of my book. But so I tell the story there, and. Um, I also did this sidebar because for this exact reason that you're asking it uh, right now is, well, what can we do um, to, to do better? And so it's things like making sure your um, child protection policies are updated and that everybody in your church has training about that and having boundary training. I don't know what your denomination has for leaders who are ordained or non-ordained. I mean, we now have something that has to be done every three years and we can do this online. And if we don't do it, you know, at some point they can withhold paychecks. So that's, you know, very motivating. Um, I think then there's a lot of low hanging fruit that churches can do. Um, just even putting um, hotline numbers in the women's restrooms. I think I think any anything that you can do that communicates to a church, we can talk about this here. I mean, just using the hashtag Me Too, you know, in a bulletin, um, in a sermon title, you know, you put it out on your marquee on your sermon title. Um, you, you just communicate to people that this is actually something that can be raised here, you know. Um, that you can observe domestic awareness, uh, a domestic abuse awareness month or a sexual violence awareness month, one in April and one in October, you know, so either fall or spring or both, you can highlight that you can have a class. I've said that it doesn't even matter if nobody came to your class. If for three weeks in a bulletin, you said you were having this class. I mean, it communicates to someone. Okay. We can talk about this here. Um, when you confess your sins, you know, to use the phrase sexual violence, sexual abuse, sexualized violence to, to, you know, just raise these as, as things um, people do, you know, take a special offering for a domestic violence shelter, you know, build a bridge with that, um, that shelter. Um, you can have a series of adult education classes in which maybe you were delve into the story of Bathsheba and David. Maybe you just take that one chapter out of my book and just really look at that, um, you know, because then you follow it with the story of the prophet Nathan and what he says to David. And it's really quite a, quite a sequence of stories. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. Anything you can do to, uh, to, uh, to raise the fact that we can talk about this here is helpful. 
you've refused to be silent and you've continued sharing your story and really speaking truth to power. It takes a lot of courage, especially after all that you've been through. And so how have you found the courage to use your voice and to not give up and to keep to keep speaking up? Where have you found that courage? It's funny. I didn't grow up in a place where we talked about Jesus really easily. Uh, we talked more about God in a more abstract sense, maybe a little bit about the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't until later in life that I just felt like Jesus himself as a human who walked this earth and as the son of God who desired wholeness for all people. I mean, I just feel like it is that connection with who I understand Jesus to be that gives me courage. and. I draw on that and I draw on that when the institution of the church fails me, which it does at times. And other times it delights me with its strength and power. Um, but, but I, that's the church is not my be all and end all. I'm really clear in my own head that I work for Jesus. Um, there's a church that pays my salary if I'm lucky. Or, um, I, I, I wouldn't be in this business anymore. If, if, if you took that person of the Trinity away from me, you know, and we have these theologies that say our life is a gift from God, right? Well, if your life is a gift from God, and this is the story you're given that includes sexual abuse, what human choice can I make that can bring the, can help bring some kind of good out of that story? I mean, I don't want that to be an empty word that my life is a gift from God and then go, yeah, but it's some really shitty places in that story, you know? So you go, no, you know, my theology says that God can bring good out of evil. But honestly, God doesn't do it alone. I mean, we are God's agents of change. And so I, I just go, that's the well I go back to all the time. And I also, you know, sometimes I have to pace myself and treat myself, do self-care. And, you know, there are times when I step away from the subject of sexual abuse for a period of time. And um, it's not on the forefront for me to, to you know, re-energize myself. And and, and, and find the courage to keep going there. Just, just like you do, Jeanette, just like any, anybody who's kind of in there for the long haul in ministry. So many beautiful and very thought-provoking things you said in that. I'm just so appreciative of your voice and your willingness to share. And I definitely am going to encourage all of my church leader friends and pastors and colleagues to consider reading your book. Uh, the Me Too Reckoning, um, I think it will help us to realize the work that we still need to do in creating healthy communities and also help us to be aware to actually spot and see abuse and call it what it is. Um, so how can our listeners find you? Where can they connect with you online? Sure. I have a website, which is just my name, RuthEverhart.com. And that's kind of my hub where I post articles, um, links to my books, a blog. I have a travel blog about when I'm traveling with my husband in a truck camper. That's the other part of Ruth. So um, that's where you can find me. And I, I do things like Twitter and Instagram really poorly, um, but I'm on Facebook too. And, and there's also a tab there linking my the podcasts and videos and things. If you want to listen to me preach, um, those feel endless these days, um, the videos on YouTube. 
Well, Ruth, thank you so much again for your courage, for sharing your story. You are making a difference. I'm just happy to have read your book and to have met you in person. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jeanette. Appreciate your ministry. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with other women in your network. For more information about me and the work that I do, check out JeanetteCochran.com. And I'd love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social. You can find me on Facebook at Coach or Instagram at Jeanette.Cochran.com.